Once again, uh, great to be with you. Uh, if, if you have a Bible with you today, uh, we're going to be in Esther chapter 3. Um, Esther chapter 3. So you can go ahead and, and turn there now. There's actually a, uh, should be, uh, a hardcover Bible in the, in the seat pocket, like in front of you, okay, on the rack, if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Um, so there's one there, otherwise you can certainly be looking on and, on your phone. Um, you know, one of our, our beliefs um, here at FEC is that every single passage, uh, every chapter, every book in the Bible reveals something to us about God. Um, and therefore, um, any time that we open up this book, uh, we are always on the lookout for, for who God is, uh, for what he is doing, and for what he has done. And of course, we know that many times uh, those truths are really easy to find, right? They're right there. That gold is right there sitting on the surface. Like, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 8, it says this, God is love. Pretty easy, right? It's easy truth to take away. But there are other times, uh, many times actually, when we read more challenging passages um, in the scriptures, like a, a list of laws or a list of names that are found in the genealogy. And the truth about God in those passages are a bit more difficult to find. Uh, But listen, just because we might not see the truth right away doesn't mean it's not there. And so this is a critical conviction that we must have when it comes to approaching God's word, the scriptures, the Bible. Otherwise, Um, What you'll do, and of course we're all probably guilty of this, we've done this. You'll pick up God's word, you'll open it, you'll you'll read it, and and when you don't see something of worth right away, um, either you get bored and just close the Bible and you're like, I can't understand this anyway, or you'll just scan through the text and move on. Like, come on, how many of you have, you've hit the genealogies and you're just like, eh, okay, you list the names and move on, right? We've all done that, right? But if you understand... You hold a conviction that there are always riches to be found. Always. Every chapter, every verse, every text. Then you will take the time to to dig. And what you'll find when you do that, with that heart, with that passion and conviction, is that no matter where you open up this book, it will always provide nourishment and life for our souls. We believe that wholeheartedly here. At this gathering. Well, that's the conviction we need to have when we open up the book of Esther. Because with Esther, what we find is that God's name is not actually mentioned even once in this book. And yet, if we look underneath the surface, we see that God's hand is everywhere. That through Esther, we see a God who is always at work, and who remains faithful through the ages to his people. You see, the the big point of Esther is that even when God seems absent, when things seem dark, God is still at work, providentially and faithfully working for the good of his people and the glory of his name. That behind all the turmoil, all the fallenness, of the fallen world that we live in, Esther shows us that God is still on the move, that he is not hindered even though he may be hidden. 
So keeping that in mind, today we're looking at Esther chapter 3, which deals with life in a fallen world. That's really what today is about, life in a fallen world. We're going to walk through this chapter together. Um, I'll give commentary along the way, and then like the last two weeks, we'll deal with some application points at the end. Now, um, as we enter Esther chapter 3, this is what we know. God's Old Testament people have been in exile for a hundred years, so nearly three generations. And the tension among God's people at this time was, how much do we assimilate into the culture? In other words, how much do we choose to look like the Persians, act like the Persians, live like the Persians? And how much do we separate ourselves from the culture, right? We kind of stick together, form this holy huddle, if you will. And it's in the middle of that tension where we find Mordecai and Esther. So, for example, last week in chapter 2, we see that Esther becomes queen, right? It's a good thing, right? She's a Jew, becomes queen, but she did so through a series of morally questionable circumstances. And by not identifying with her God, she actually is ordered by her father to hide who she was, and she follows. And Mordecai, uh, the one who gives instruction, Esther's father, we see that his character and his motives are also in question. And so for both of them, we see individuals who are identifying with God internally. It's in their blood. They are Jews. And yet they're appearing to be Persian externally. And of course, one of the main questions that came out of last week, and really the last two weeks, is what is my identity, right? Is my identity divided? And in what ways do I compromise, or am I tempted to compromise my faith? Well, now, as we begin chapter 3, we learn um, that things actually go from bad to worse. Esther became queen in chapter 2, But now five years have passed. Remember between chapter 1 and chapter 2, four years pass. Now we see between Esther 2 and 3, five years have passed. So nine years between the start of 1 and where we are today. And this is what we learned, starting in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And so here we meet a new character that appears out of nowhere, Haman the Agagite. We learn that he is promoted to a very high position in Persia. In fact, it's a position that's above all the other officials. And we're not told, actually, the text is silent on why he was promoted. We're just left assuming. But regardless, what we see within this verse are actually not just one, but multiple layers of very deep tension. You just have to dig, okay? And so let's talk about that. First, we need to keep in mind what was written just before this in chapter 2. We read last week that Mordecai um, had helped stop an assassination attempt on King Xerxes, right, on King Ahasuerus. I'd mentioned last week that typically within the Persian Empire, 
acts of loyalty uh, came with a big reward. Why? Because kings wanted to promote loyalty to the empire. Uh, they wanted to, you know, uh, disintegrate any types of disloyalty. But even with that, even so, Mordecai is not rewarded, actually. Um, actually, nothing is done for him. All we get is silence. And so the fact that this chapter opens up five years later with this guy, Haman, getting a promotion for unstated reasons introduces a tension in the plot. It's meant to make us think, wait, like what's going on here? What's happening? This isn't fair, right? Who is this guy? What about Mordecai? Why wasn't he promoted? This seems unjust. So that's first. And then the second layer of tension requires a bit more unpacking. And that is that Haman is identified here on purpose as an Agagite. Now, of course, that doesn't mean much to us, right? You read that text and you moved on, right? Most of us. But the original readers would have gasped when they read that. They would have been in utter shock. Because what that means is deep conflict. And why? Well, we need a bit of context here. You see, after the Israelites, um, they walk through the Red Sea. It's parted. Um, they leave Egypt. They come out of slavery. God brings together his people for the first time in hundreds of years, we learn that there's a man named Agag who was king of the Amalekites. And what he did was he designed a plan, a tactic to attack Israel. And so what we know from the scriptures is that the Amalekites with King Agag are the, actually, they're the first enemies of the Jews after they, they came out of slavery. And so Along with that, we also read, though, is that um, they were pretty brutal. They were a vicious people that when they decide to attack Israel, uh, they're kind of crafty and deceiving that they decide to attack from behind. Okay? And that's significant in that culture um, because, especially if you're running away, you can think who's typically left behind. It's the weak, right? the elderly, the sick, the women, and the children. And so the Amalekites, we learn, slaughter um, those people, those Israelites. Um, it was, it's brutal. And so as a result of that, God declared that there was going to be lasting conflict between these two groups, the Israelites and the Amalekites. Even though, along with that, he also made this promise. He said that I'm going to blot out the Amalekites from the face of the earth. Right, from under heaven, they will no longer exist as a people because of what they've done against you, my people. Right? So, we have this history. Well, time moves on, and years later, after this attack by Agag, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that Israel's, Israel has a first king. His name is Saul. Saul is in power, and we learn that they, were, they are taking territory, and they're expanding the kingdom, and God commands Saul and his army to wipe out Amalek and Agog. He's like, this is the time, right? My promise is going to be fulfilled. Do it. Wipe them out, all of them. But what happens? Well, we see that they attack, the Israelites win, but sadly, Saul was ultimately disobedient because he spares the life of King Agag. 
he lets him go. And for that reason, we know that Saul was rejected okay, by God, and ultimately he would lose his position as king for his disobedience. And so we have this history, and now we go back to our story, and now we understand that calling Haman the Agagite tells, tells us and ties him to, to all of this terrible history for God's people going all the way back to the Exodus. And so this opening of the chapter is meant to make us think right away, trouble is coming. Of all of the people given power in Persia, it could have been anyone, right? God's sovereign providential hand. It's an Agagite, an enemy, one of the worst enemies of Israel. And so for Jewish people reading this, th this question uh, would certainly be on their hearts and minds. Like, where is God? And I think that's a question along the way of Esther. But it's here again. Where is God? And is God going to be faithful to his promise to defend us from our enemies, to, to save us from the Agagites, the Amalekites? Or, because of our disobedience, has he let us go? So there's very real tension here. Things are not looking good at all. Then we move into verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So the king commands everyone okay, to kneel, to bow down, to pay honor to Haman. And of course, we know that that was not uncommon okay, for this empire or this, this kingdom or for anyone that matter in the ancient world, uh, for people who were in power or authority, you would bow down before them right, to pay respect. And we see that people obey. They follow Hashuerus' words, everyone besides Mordecai, that is. And we can't know for certain um, exactly what was taking place in all of these conversations between the officials and the, the palace workers and, and Mordecai, but we do get some clues here. So we see that Mordecai's co-workers, they're persistent in this, right? They're asking him over and over again, like, what's going on? Like, why won't you bow down? And that makes sense because, again, we can see up to this point, uh, Mordecai has been acting and living as a Persian. So why? What's going on here? And so it appears that Mordecai told them the history of the Jews, and more significantly, that he was himself a Jew. You see that at the end of the text? For he told them that he was a Jew. And so that makes a really interesting development to the story because remember, we haven't seen Mordecai take any brave stand or stance for his faith up to this point in the story. Right? Remember, prior to this, right, he sends his daughter Esther into the arms of a king. Right? And there is no record of any opposition or resistance to that. Right? There's no record of any regret or remorse for encouraging 
his daughter to hide her identity as a Jew and to allow her to sleep and marry a Gentile king. But now there seems to be some sort of shift because Mordecai won't bow down. He won't. Now, um, there's a couple different opinions on this. Uh, Some say that Mordecai, well, he didn't bow down because he was just being proud. He was just being arrogant, right? He wanted that title and position, and another person was there, and so he's, you know, proud. I'm not going to bow down, but there's no indication of that in this passage. There's no hint of that, and so many, uh, many now have uh, uh, come to this, uh, believe that he's come to this place of regret, that for the first time, maybe he shows a little remorse. There's a little bit of repentance within his heart, and now he's saying, I cannot deny my God any longer. So that's the other extreme. Or maybe, and I sort of lean on this, maybe it's somewhere in the middle, and it's just as simple as, as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, to bow to an Agagite was just too much. Like, he was willing to assimilate to a certain extent. But now, like, this is a whole other story, right? But we, again, we don't know exactly why he won't bow. We just know he, he won't. Well, then we see the story takes a tragic turn. It gets intense. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So, we see here, Haman wanted Mordecai to be dealt with. His ego was bruised. His pride is hurt. He's filled with rage. So, he decides that all of the Jews... All of them need to be destroyed. And what's interesting about that is, um, we have to understand this. It's sort of unique. But the Persian Empire was actually uh, very tolerant of minorities um, because of their practice of exile right, and constantly bringing in foreign people. Like, this was a tactic. And so the, it was a very foreign, uh, mixed uh, mixed bag of an empire, if you will. It's a, it's a true kind of, I don't know, it's almost like uh, you, what you see maybe in, the, in America, right? It was just so diverse. That was this empire because, again, they're assimilating all these people into their culture. So people look different and, and talk different, even though ultimately they're speaking Persian. And that's the goal. So there, there is a, some tolerance in Persia with foreigners, but now we see Haman was about to change that. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it, cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So what's happening here? Well, pur here, we're told by the author, is equivalent to uh, casting lots. Um, and if you're not familiar with lots, it's just imagine dice. Okay, like kind of like dice. But they weren't used for gambling purposes. Uh, they were used for seeking answers to questions about the future. Okay, divination. 
And we actually see lots used a lot throughout the Old Testament, even by God's people, because it was believed that casting lots revealed the will of God. So, for example, Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So this would have been in the mind of the original readers, meaning that they would know right, who is really in control of all of this. There's a little glimmer of hope here. And then verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So we see here now, uh, Haman, he does this. He, he skillfully, very skillfully, it gives us indication of why he rose to power. He's a master with his words. And he skillfully manipulates the king to support his plan for genocide, the genocide of God's people. And he knows a couple things. First, he knows that the king, in his arrogance, he wants obedience. He wants people to be obedient to him. And so he appeals to the king's fear of revolt. You better be careful. These Jewish people, right, they don't follow your ways. They have their own set of rules. Maybe they'll, you know, one day come against you. And notice, too, he carefully avoids even mentioning the people he has in mind. He doesn't say they're Jewish right away. Further, we see he appeals to the king's love of money. He says, yeah, you should do this, and here's another reason why, because you're going to get even richer if you do so. And so the argument is a pretty good one for a pagan king. Let's get rid of these people who are not obeying you, and you're going to get wealthy doing it. Sounds good, right? Now, of course, we know that there are a lot of lies within Haman's words. There are only half-truths within his words. But still, the king doesn't turn down this request. So the story continues. The lots, or the purr, are cast. An order is sent out for genocide. It's translated into all of the languages of the empire, sent out by royal courier, royal mail, and the message found within it is this, that in 11 months, 11 months from now, every Jewish person in the empire must die, every single one of them, young, old, men, women, children, all of them are to be annihilated. And on top of that, everything that they have, everything that they own is to be taken and given back to the empire. And here is the tragic, here is the tragic irony. It's easy to miss. You gotta dig. That's why I said, you gotta dig. Every text has a meaning. The message is delivered by mail, and it is received by the Jewish people, we're told, on the 13th day of the first month, which is significant. Why? Because it's actually the eve of the Jewish Passover. And what is Passover? Well, Passover celebrates the rescue of Israel from their enemy, but it also celebrates the existence 
of God's people. So did Haman do, do this on purpose? We don't know. Was God's sovereign hand over it? Yes. So on the eve of Passover, the celebration, the preparation is being done to celebrate the existence, uh, their existence as God's people. And now they get this threat that marks the end of their existence as God's people. You see the tragic irony there. This is deep and intense. They learn that all of the power of the Persian Empire in 11 months is going to come down on them. They will all die. There's nothing they can do. So um, this scene is chilling. Um, And then the scene and chapter closes with verse 15. It says this, the couriers, that's the royal mail carriers, they went out, hurried by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman, what's their response? Sit down to drink. But the city of Susa, the capital, was thrown into confusion, chaos. So Haman and the king are ambivalent. They are indifferent. They're sort of, you can kind of imagine sitting to each other and sort of maybe, I don't know, tapping each other on the back for this wonderful plan that they have, right? The power that they have. All the while, Susa is in chaos, confusion. The city, in other words, doesn't know what to do with this. They don't know what to think of this. Perhaps they felt helpless in terms of how they could help their neighbors, how they could support their friends, but they can't. This is just the way of the empire. The lots have been cast. The edict was given, uh, issued, and it seemed like there was nothing that anyone at this point can do. So once again, we are left with this question, is God still their God? It certainly doesn't look so up to this point, right? The Jews are trapped. Their fate is sealed. Their days are literally now, their days are numbered, right? You've heard that expression before. Their days literally are numbered. All the odds are stacked against them. So what do we do with this? Well, um, you and I don't have to receive a death threat, I think, for this to, be, to hit home in our hearts. I at least hope not. I hope not. Because in your own life, let me ask, like, have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever been despaired? Ever felt sinned against or misunderstood? Have you ever felt like the world is crashing down on you or upon you? That it's this life, this world, it's just too much to bear. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it. Listen, this is life in a fallen world. It's the reality of life in a fallen world, and that's what this chapter is highlighting. And this is where Esther's story, I believe, intersects our own story. And so I want to make a couple observations from this chapter that I believe applies to our lives today, and I'll make three. The first one is this. Number one, to live well in the world as Jesus's people or as followers of Jesus, we must have appropriate expectations of the world. You want to make it through this life. You want to live well as a follower of Jesus. 
Number one, you have to have appropriate expectations of the world that we live in. What do I mean by that? Well, that is, know what this world provides us and what it does not provide us. This is so important. I mean, think about all of the different aspects of brokenness and fallenness that have come about just in this chapter alone. So many ethnic rivalry, threats of genocide, being overlooked, the undeserving being promoted, indifference, abuse of power, corrupt politics, greed, selfishness, right? But again, this is, this is just a snapshot of life in a fallen world. Not a lot has changed after the thousand, couple thousand years, right? This is the world we live in. Because here's the thing, we have to know this even as followers of Jesus, that no one denies, no one, no one denies that there is a problem of evil in the world. No one. We just disagree on its source. And I wish, I really wish, the apologetics nature of me wishes that we have time to go into all the varying views on this. We don't, so I'll just stick with the Bible for now. But here's what we know. See, God reveals in the scriptures that evil and injustice are a result of sin and God's righteous judgment on the world. And so what that means is that while Jesus' people, while you and I should weep, we should be broken, weep over evil. And at the same time, we should do what we can to curb evil in this world and in our, the lives around us. We shouldn't be surprised by wickedness. Evil and pain and trial and tribulation and heartache is a part of life in a fallen world. And the reason that I'm highlighting this is because knowing that, not just here, but here, knowing that reality helps, helps us to set our expectations for what the world can offer us. Listen, if our expectations are off on this, and we have a wrong view of the world and what it can give us, we will think, we will believe that a pain-free, trial-free, struggle-free life is available to us here and now. And in that, we will live, if you think that, you will live your entire life in constant disappointment, disillusionment, and frustration. But when we know that the world is fallen, it'll help us adjust what we think we can get from the world and what the world is meant to do for us. Knowing the world is fallen will help us to not put our ultimate focus, our primary confidence and hope here and now. And at the same time, it will give us perspective and help us to be prepared when bad things happen to us and when bad things happen around us, because they will. And if we understand that, that brokenness and fallenness is actually to be expected, that it is nothing new that there is no escaping, actually, the fallenness of this world, that will actually help us to endure this life as we trust in the faithfulness of our great God. It'll help us say with the psalmist in Psalm 112, it says this, beautiful words, the one who trusts in the Lord is not afraid of bad news. Listen to that. The one who trusts in the Lord 
is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Some of you need to hear that, so I'm going to say it again. The one who trusts in the Lord is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will, she will not be afraid. So living well in a fallen world requires the right perspective and having the right expectations of the world. But what also helps us to live well is knowing that God is at work amidst all of this fallenness, amidst all of this brokenness. And that's the second point today. To live well in the world, we must know that God is mysteriously, often quietly, at work through life's brokenness. He's at work through life's brokenness. Now I know three weeks in a row right now, we keep coming back to this idea We keep coming back to this point. And why? Well, because Esther keeps drawing us back to this point. And we have to keep coming back to this truth because we forget, don't we? This is what we do. We forget. See, Esther shows us again and again that against all odds, that God is quietly and mysteriously protecting and preserving his people in the most unexpected ways. He did it then. Who was over those lots? Who was over the per- They knew. He did it then. He was over and above all their situations then. And he's over and above all of our situations now. He protected them then. He's protecting us now. He provided for them then. He's providing for us now. He cared for them then. He's caring for us now. He loved them then despite their sin. He loves you now despite your sin. Because listen, this is part of the new covenant promise that is found in Jesus Christ. That if you belong to Jesus, God promises, God himself promises to be with you and to never give up on you. Right? We can bank our lives on that truth, and we should. So our lives, our lives can be flipped, turned upside down. Our deeds, our good deeds can go unnoticed. Our bad deeds can, go, uh, can be blown out of proportion. Right? We can face years upon years of what seems like unexpected silence. I mean, we're nine years into Esther, and God doesn't appear to be there. Right? We can have an Agagite as a boss, as a leader, as a president. Right? One day, everything's going so great. Everything seems fine, good. Life's on the right track. The next day, you are totally beaten down by life. But this story, Esther's story, gives us reason, gives us good reason to bear those situations and seasons with patience and with grace, even through tears sometimes, because we know, we believe that God is at work and that these happenings are ultimately leading to a greater good, even when it seems hopeless, even when it seems helpless. Listen, we know, we know that in Jesus, in him, that in God's planned time, our seasons of trial and struggle will bear good fruit. It is guaranteed. 
We don't know what the fruit will be or when it will appear. But we do know that it will appear. It will come about. And so in the middle of those seasons, we just simply trust him. We trust that God is at work making all of these situations, all of these circumstances. He's weaving in all of these seasons into a chain of good that is not yet to come. And let me just say this as as well. We don't know. We don't know all the answers as to why God allows certain types of brokenness and fallenness to occur in our lives and the lives of those around us. But again, we do know what making it through those valley seasons can and often will do for us. For example, when we trust the Lord in the midst of the brokenness of this world, it often displays uh, to this world the worth of Christ his value, and that we have a greater hope that is actually outside of this world. And what a witness that can be. Not only that, our life in a fallen world can can and often does deepen our relationship with God because it forces us to cling to him more tightly, more than the world and what it has to offer. Living in and amongst brokenness can also transform our character Because it helps us to think and consider more deeply who we are and what we are living our lives for. It can also help us when we when we live through trials and troubles, when we when we live amongst a broken world, it can help us to to be more apathetic and empathetic to others because we know too what it is to suffer trials of many kinds. And of course, living in this fallen world only increases our future joy. You see, we hold on to this great promise that one day God will make all things new and bring all evil and brokenness to an end. And when that happens, I believe we will appreciate the removal of evil that much more because we actually lived amongst it. When God removes sin and evil and pain from us, we will be all the more joyous because we know what it's like to deal with trial and pain and suffering, right? So how do we face our fallen world? We we have to. We live in a broken world. How do we face it with all the, the trials and the troubles, all the injustices, all the tragic turns, all the confusion? It's actually pretty simple. We we have a proper perspective of the world, what it gives to us and what it does not. We know that God is at work amidst all of this fallenness. And then in that, we let those realities motivate us to stand firm, to endure, to persevere. Listen, like history, history has shown us so clearly that there is a force at work in the world that is bent on destroying God's people bent on destroying God's purposes. It's been that way since the very beginning in the garden, and it remains that a reality today. Sometimes, for a lot of us spiritually, others physically, they're facing persecution and death and destruction, just like in the Persian Empire right now. So we have to understand this. Like As dark as Esther 3 appears, we need to also know that Haman's plans here are actually nothing new. 
and all that brokenness that we face, whatever you're going through right now, this is meant to be harsh. It's just meant to speak the truth into your life. Whatever you're facing right now that so, seems so dark, you can't get over it. Right? It's a trial. It's a deep trouble in your life. You need to remember this as well. It's actually nothing new. It's not unique to you. And the message of the Bible is clear that despite the power of ungodly empires over the world and dark spiritual forces, it will not always be so. Jesus, the King of Kings, will return and he will have ultimate victory. And there is no one, no one, nothing, that can overcome him and his purposes. No one can thwart his plan, right? Which is why Revelation 13.10 gives us this encouragement. It says this, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What's the translation there? Simple. Stand firm, church. <laughs> That's what John writes. Stand firm. Keep going. Because there is nothing, again, there is nothing that you are facing now that your brothers and your sisters in the faith have not faced before. God's people have always survived and, and learned to live amidst a broken and fallen world. They always have. We always have. So what should you do? Keep going. And how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, the answer is always the same. It's always the same. We fix our gaze on Christ. We set our hearts and hopes on the one who endured our fallen world. You want to live well in a broken world? You need to learn how to continually set your heart and your hope on the one who endured this fallen world. And we see this, of course, well, now I won't say of course, in my opinion, most clearly in Jesus' tear-filled prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the cusp, we know the story, if you don't, on the cusp of being betrayed by his closest friends, having enemies in high places, rulers, leaders who were going to come against him. Tragic turn of events, similar to Esther, being unjustly beaten, undeserved, tried, murdered for our sins. Jesus says this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. We learn that in the Garden of Gethsemane that evening, the night before he would die on the cross, that his pain, that trial, his stress was so severe. The Bible tells us he's on his knees and he was actually, actually sweating drops of blood from his forehead. That much stress. But listen, listen, yet, through it all, in it all, Jesus endured it. He stood firm and he trusted. How did he do that? He trusted the Father in the face of great suffering because he knew that his Father was at work in the dark. Not my will. God, but yours be done. He didn't even deserve the suffering he bore, right? It was our suffering that he was taking on himself. 
Because we recognize that not only do we live in a fallen and broken world, but we are also a fallen and a broken people. That outside of Jesus Christ, we have not kept God's ways. We have not bowed down to the one who is the ultimate authority. We have not paid homage and honor to him. But even still, Jesus came for rebels and enemies like you and I to take what we deserved for our sin, for that rebellion, for our indifference on himself, on the cross. Jesus perfectly followed God's law for us. He died our death for us. He rose again for us. In effect, he came to this earth saying, I, I will stand in their place. I will live in their place. I will receive their punishment. I will receive the consequences of their sin and disobedience and their fallenness on me. And why? Why? So that through faith in Christ, through trust in him, we might be brought into a relationship with him where there is full forgiveness, where there is unending joy, unending love, unending peace. Listen, I say that to say because if Jesus, if we know and understand truly that Jesus did that for us, then we can turn around and trust him without hesitation or without reservation amidst life in a falling world now. Because he endured for us, we can endure. Because he stood firm through the trials and pains of this life, we can stand firm regardless of the trial and the pain that we might face. So right now, um, we're going to do something a little, just a little bit different. Not too out of the ordinary, but a little bit different. Um, I want to ask the, the worship team to, to come back and join me on the stage. I mean, what I want us to do um, still, in the quietness of this moment, um, I want us to just, I'm going to give some time for you. I want us to just take a few minutes to ourselves to be still Uh, Maybe it's time to confess, to pray. Uh, I want us together to pour out our hearts uh, before the Lord because because he cares for us. I want us to, to take a moment, just a moment, to think. I want you to reflect on your perspective. Think about your perspective today. What are your expectations for the world? what it's going to provide for you, what you think that you deserve. Let's meditate on the, on the reality that God is working through all of this brokenness. And let's once again resolve in our hearts to stand firm, uh, to commit ourselves once again to, to looking to Jesus, the one who has overcome And after a couple minutes, uh, a few moments have gone by and we've done that, I'll close our time in prayer and then I'll invite you to stand and we'll sing uh, one last song together. So let's do that now. Let's pray.